This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Alex Reese. Don't adjust your podcast provider. You usually hear me at the end of these shows, but the questionable decision has been made to let me take the reins this time around. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is a big piece of terminology for a very simple problem. Athletes are receiving heavy blows to the head, leading to severe cognitive impairment in later life. It's a disease that was first identified as dementia pugilistica in boxing, but over the years, the symptoms were recognised in several other contact sports. The story of the effect CTE has on the brain is told in a delicate game, Brain Injury, Sport and Sacrifice. Its author, audio producer and fellow Goldsmiths graduate Hannah Walker-Brown joins me today. Hi, Hannah. Hi. I didn't know you went to Goldsmiths. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm for class of 2017. It's 10 years for me, which feels very... <laughs> far away. 2017 feels like a long time ago as well, uh, given, yeah. the, uh, given the last couple of years. So for many listeners, the first experience they'll have had of CTE um, as a condition is in the film Concussion, starring Will Smith as mm. Dr. Bennett Amalu, which is a strange film to watch in 2022. One of his colleagues in the film dramatically kind of comes up to him after he examines the brain of former NFL player Mike Webster. And he says, you have to give this a name. Is that the real origin story of CTE as a diagnosable condition? No, not exactly. This was looked at, you sort of mentioned it at the beginning, dementia pugilistica, that was in back in 1928. From 1940 onwards, when the addition of chronic came to traumatic encephalopathy, so CTE essentially by researchers Bauman and Blau, who studied a 28-year-old professional boxer whose career had abruptly ended because he was suffering from the neurological symptoms associated with ultimately being hit in the head. So it was already traumatic encephalopathy. They added the chronic because he wasn't getting any better. So it has been around for a very long time. That wasn't just in boxers. There are papers from the 1930s, 1940s that do include NFL players, do include football, have reference to any sport where an athlete is being hit to the head. So this isn't a new phenomenon. Like absolutely the concussion movie was an entry point for a lot of people. It certainly kind of catapulted it into the mainstream. You know, you had a very prominent actor like Will Smith in the starring role. But yeah, it's uh, it's been around a lot longer than people think. As I said at the start, there's a lot of kind of terminology that goes into this book. It's things like, you know, axons and tau protein mm. and, and things like that. <laughs> what did you learn about the actual physical effects that take place in the brain when a professional athlete is receiving blows of that kind of force? Yeah, sure. And I think 
it's really important to note that I think the reason why this sort of has flown under the radar, part of that is because the language is so difficult. Like science is quite exclusionary unless you've got the vocabulary, which you'll only have if you've studied it. I didn't. It took me a long time to get to grips with all of that. And I made the beautiful brain podcast before I made a delicate game. So I've had sort of six years to grapple with this. And actually, one of the things that I will never forget is seeing a brain scan of a boxer and a uh, well actually ultimately she she died so victim of domestic violence and their brain scans side by side and it was exactly the same pathology and it literally looked like someone had kind of torn the middle of their brain there were like these huge holes and that was another kind of seminal moment because the focus is often on athletes is often on kind of star players as it should be because they're at risk but the other most at risk groups are military personnel but also victims and survivors of domestic violence who are also being repeatedly hit to the head and just seeing that as a visual was so powerful to me because yeah like I said it literally just looks like the brain is being torn and it's got this gaping hole in it. In CTE the tau forms that this is very simplistic just for kind of people listening but the tau forms clump together and they slowly spread throughout the brain which ultimately ends up killing the cells which is kind of where you get the same sort of symptoms as things like dementia um, and other serious brain diseases are all associated with kind of this abnormal tau protein what ends up happening is they spread across you know it can take decades multiple brain regions which is kind of why you see this neurodegeneration and ultimately kind of as the symptoms get worse that's ultimately what's happening in this job, I've, I've read books about COVID already and I've read books about climate change. And I think the thing that strikes me is that there is this push from scientists to make something that is very crucial, but also very wordy, very complicated into something that is is digestible by the kind of people who can make changes. And in this case, mm. it's sports governing bodies. And we'll get into that in just a moment. For now, I want to talk about Jeff Assel, who passed away in 2002. This is the former yeah. West Brom striker. He was just 59 years old. Uh, at the time, the coroner's inquest ruled that he died of industrial disease from heading footballs. Mm. And the, uh, the mm. PFA, the Footballers Union, said it would conduct its own 10-year investigation uh, into his death. How did that go? I mean, it's very strange that because they'd already sort of floated this idea the year before. So the year before he died, this was already being set in motion. And ultimately, yes, they reiterated it around Jeff Astle's death and promised the family something would be done, which, you know, for a family in the midst of grief, it not that it was a silver lining by any means, but if it meant that no other family would have to go through what they did because, you know, his death was bad enough but everything leading up to that point how the kind of dementia took a hold of him and his symptoms were just horrendous for all of them you know by the end he'd forgotten he'd been a footballer so this study was promised and it wasn't until years later that a journalist Sam Peters who was leading the Mail on Sunday's concussion campaign for rugby did a little bit of digging and and basically came to the conclusion that the study, if it had been started, it it had ultimately been stopped. And he told the Astles, who were quite rightly just, well, Dawn, Jeff's daughter, was furious. I think his wife, Lorraine, was sort of not surprised. So then they started the Justice for Jeff campaign. And, you know, it was two decades worth of fight 
by Dawn Astle now and I've spoken on this quite often and within the book you meet them all but they're not alone anymore in that fight in trying to make the game safer and trying to ensure that you know the players that are suffering are given adequate support that their families are given support but also that protocol is managed and actually is it the sporting bodies that need to come up with the rules or is it an outside kind of government body that needs to enforce them because for so long sport has been allowed to govern itself and you know if you ask a child to mark its own homework for example it's not necessarily going to give himself a bad (laughs) score so I think that's something that's really important is this has to come beyond sport because it's already self-governing and it isn't fit for purpose there are things that are changing they're changing very slowly because I think folded into all of this is that idea of accountability if you do hold yourself accountable then you open yourself up to litigation which we're seeing now with the 150 player strong litigation against rugby we saw it with the NFL so I think that is a kind of line they're trying not to cross but I think that um, the rules need to come from from above and be implemented Mm. So let's talk about rugby and protocol. So Benjamin Robinson is the 14-year-old rugby player who's mentioned on the cover of the book, who plays through multiple blows and never wakes up. In the case of rugby, Dr. Willie Stewart of the Glasgow Brain Injury Research Group has said that international rugby is recording one brain injury per match. So how is it being addressed in the professional game? And how was Benjamin Robinson let down that day? Sure. And I think it's important to note that concussion is a brain injury. And Mm. just again, to differentiate two things there. So concussion are those impacts to the head that cause immediate symptoms. So that might be blackout, vomiting, dizziness. There's immediate feedback, not just for the person suffering them, but for anyone watching, you can see very clearly if someone is suffering a concussion. Obviously, if they're knocked out on the floor, that's kind of the biggest indicator. But there's also subconcussive hits, and they're the hits that don't necessarily cause immediate symptoms. So that's where things like heading a football comes in, maybe an elbow to the head where, you know, you probably are fine to play on, you know, seemingly there's nothing wrong with you. A ref or a medic watching might not think, you know, you've received a concussion, but it's accumulation of those subconcussive hits that can also cause CTE. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. And in terms of Benjamin Robinson, he was playing schoolboy rugby and he took three hits and he was displaying signs of a concussion he couldn't remember the score he was telling people he didn't feel right he can be seen in a video captured by the opposing team that day who used to essentially film their matches for training purposes um it then became a key piece of evidence in the two inquests surrounding his death but he could be seen stumbling around at one point he runs the wrong way (laughs) up the pitch And he wasn't taken off, despite his mother's kind of pleas to get him off. And ultimately, he suffered from second impact syndrome, which is when you receive a concussive hit and quickly you receive a second. And ultimately, he died um, in hospital, but he never woke up from the fourth blow on the pitch. You know, that was a kind of just devastating, tragic event that had one person known correct protocol, which is ultimately, if in doubt, sit them out, which is something that Benjamin's father 
Peter Robinson pushes on Twitter all the time, you know, quite rightly because he doesn't want any other family to go through what they went through. You know, that's something I think needs to be kept in mind is when all the focus is on the elite professional athletes, what happens to grassroots and and kids who are looking to those athletes, who are looking to that game and, and how they play, how they respond to certain things. We forget that with their professional games, they do have access to excellent medics most of the time. And, you know, if they are very ill or they need to take, I mean, it should be essentially six weeks to recover from a concussion but you know if you're in grassroots and you've got a full-time job and you just play at the weekend for example or if you're a kid and you play at school you don't have that level of access to I guess privilege to be honest to that kind of healthcare and the time to recover so I think whenever we discuss the professional game you have to keep those groups in mind because ultimately they're the ones that are going to suffer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Whenever there's a statement from a sports governing body in the book, it's kind of like it's been copy-pasted from another one. It's always, we're taking the safety of our players very seriously and we're examining the evidence very carefully. This is from when experts provide the kind of evidence which is emblematic of CTE and former players and mm. the, the governing bodies then take a look at it. And uh, it's it's kind of like you were saying with the Jeff Hassel investigation. It seems like they put it in a drawer and then never expected it to be something they'd have to address. Uh, so how stark is the contrast between the words on paper and the actions being taken by some of these governing bodies? I don't think there is action. There's a little. There hasn't been for a very long time. And I think it has been a lot of talk. And again, I think this ties into accountability and what you open yourself up for. If you do take accountability, you know, millions and millions of reasons why they wouldn't do that. And I think it's very easy. Well, it used to be easier, I think, with something like CTE, because it could only be diagnosed post-mortem. And, you know, it wasn't quantitative. You didn't know how many hits it would take. And people want to know, you know, what it is, how it works, how to stop it. And, and that was kind of not a gray area, but it wasn't definitive. You know, there were inconsistencies. And I think I say in the book, science can't be sold on inconsistencies, which kind of worked in sports favor because they needed something concrete and it wasn't there so during that point it was like oh we're still working out we need more research we need more research but the further you take that and the less you engage with it or or the more they drag their feet at the same time the number of people being diagnosed is increasing every single day there is a new story a new person you know social media is amazing for that that these families have been able to find each other and that's across all sport and globally New Zealand rugby players you've got the litigation against rugby here that they've all joined into you've got football players you know Alex Popham 
and Steve Thompson, the rugby professionals, like diagnosed at 38 and 40 with dementia. This is just abhorrent. It's not, you can't use the excuse anymore that, you know, the 66 team, for example, would have got dementia anyway because of their age. This is like, no, no one should be getting a diagnosis at 38 years old. Certainly not this many people. So I think before they drag their feet, because they could, and I just don't think they can anymore. People aren't being quiet anymore because there's strength in numbers. I think for a long time, as I said, it was just Dawn Astle sort of single-handedly leading the revolution. And it's very easy to tell a single person to shut up. But I think now it's not just her. There's countless others. There's scientists. There's groups like progressive rugby lobbying the sport to do better who aren't kind of fighting or arguing with anyone they're very measured in how they approach this and the research they do and the articles they put out and there's huge players involved in that so I think everyone's realized now that something has to be done and I think that is a lot easier on the people wanting change we're very protective over our sports as England especially like I don't know if I've ever seen anyone as happy on the tube as when England are winning their rounds in the World Cup. Like it, on, it changes the whole energy of the city. Mm. So to think that that thing that we love that brings us all together that ultimately is amazing for us as well. Like you know, no one's arguing about the benefits of sport. To consider that as bad, or, or consider that that might have to change, like that really gets a lot of people's backs up. And I think more so a few years ago. I think now those people are starting to come on side, and I think that's when sport will really have to move because if you lose the fans then you lose everything you speak to a survivor of domestic violence whose symptoms Mm. kind of mirror those of the sports people you've interviewed the most notorious diagnoses of cte have so far been in men how far behind is the study of brain injuries in women compared to men oh so far behind like with most of medicine which fails women there's kind of one seminal paper on CTE in women and it's called Dementia in a Punch Drunk Wife which was about a woman I mentioned earlier um, with the brain scan but who had suffered a a lifetime of abuse at the hands of her partner when she died her brain scan had the exact same pathology as that of a boxer domestic violence people still don't want to have that conversation there's so much kind of stigma and shame surrounding it so another reason why That hasn't been kind of front and centre in comparison to, say, star athletes. But there's very real consequences for traumatic brain injury and more so in terms of domestic violence, domestic abuse, because it can be the difference between safety in prosecuting a perpetrator you know if you've suffered a traumatic brain injury you're forgetting appointments you can't remember details you don't make a good witness in court if suddenly you know if you manage to leave and get away and suddenly you're in charge of your finances for the first time or you have to negotiate childcare and being safe and doing police reports like that can be really really tricky on top of you know any PTSD or depression or anything else you're living with and often it's not recognized I think again hits to the head and strangulation have increased in terms of domestic violence because they typically don't leave marks 
And if a woman has, you know, got a bloody nose or bruises, they're the things that are addressed first by paramedics or in a hospital. So brain injuries can be missed. And that involves training paramedics, training police with their questioning. Police can be pretty intense in questioning. If you've suffered a traumatic brain injury and you can't remember things, they just think, you know, you're unreliable. There are many consequences that aren't just kind of what could happen later but what could happen right now as a result and you know we all know what happens if a particularly violent perpetrator doesn't get prosecuted you know then it's not domestic violence anymore it's homicide. I was struck by your visits to the Assel House which is full of memorabilia from Jeff's playing career. Uh, Eventually his wife and daughter realise he's forgotten he was ever a footballer at all. Uh, another host of this show, Alexandreo, has spoken before about how memory loss is a collective forgetting as well as a personal one. The yeah. memories that are held by one person are lost to everyone they love as well. It's kind of that thing of where you have a, a relative with memory loss and you can't ask them anymore. It's like, oh, do you remember that holiday where we went to X and Y? Was it that island or this island and and, and things like that? And so it's, it's not just a, a personal thing. But do you find that when you were interviewing the families of sports people like their lives are so much far they're kind of far removed from the general population because their proudest moments in their lives have been immortalized by thousands of people there's the poster in their house in in Jeff's house of mm. him scoring the winning goal in the FA Cup final I think yeah. Dawn says something along the lines of well I'm glad that he didn't score it with his head yeah Lorraine his wife mm-hmm. so there's that kind yeah. of there's that collective forgetting that happens when you have memory loss, dementia. Like, How different mm. did you find that with professional athletes? God, I'm so glad you asked that because I think that's another thing people don't ever consider with something like dementia. It's not just one person that's lost, but two. Like if you've been with someone, as long as some of these women have been with their partners, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and all the memories that you shared together are essentially gone because you're the only person that knows they exist. So I think Mm. that's another thing that you're kind of contending with that is desperately sad because where does that leave you and who does that leave you if, you know, and this isn't a case of, you know, you're half a person until the other person comes along, but all those moments you had, they die with that person. And I think a lot of the time the families were told, he's dead now, What, what are you bothering with? I think it's very easy to suggest that we move on when people are dead, but actually now tentative diagnoses are being received while people are living. I still think the humanity of this situation gets lost in the noise, in people kind of watching sport and science essentially fight each other, even though they're starting to be on the same side and science isn't fighting for any other reason than it knows what's going on. And I think the way you get people to engage and care is through the human stories. So I think that has to come first. And that's what I want to put front and centre. And then then the science kind of folds into all of that. But you just keep talking about it. You keep remembering them. You keep platforming those people. So just finally, you mentioned an experience you had working in Bangladesh where an entire Mm. town kind of gathered to watch a cricket match that was projected Mm. on a 
bedsheet above the street as an example of the power that sport holds over people. And, and that power, for, for good or bad, runs throughout the book. How do you feel about sport now? I mean, look, I think sport's great. I don't think anyone in the book, despite what they've been through, hates sport. But I also really care about people. I didn't come from sport and I didn't come from science. I just started looking into this story, learned very quickly a lot about kind of science, really embedded myself within the sport, but mostly it was the people. And I think this isn't a kind of a sport story. Yes, the gateway to this has been sport but again as we mentioned there's domestic violence in that there's military personnel in that anyone can get a concussion it's not just people who play sport so this does open up a wider conversation and currently in the UK there are almost a million people who have dementia there's no cure there's no treatment by 2051 scientists think that number will rise to 2.1 million if there are things that could prevent that that's not to say people wouldn't get it later but we know that repetitive hits to the head can cause these neurodegenerative diseases. So why wouldn't we be preventing that? Hannah Walker-Brown, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. A Delicate Game is out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday, with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays, and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you'd like the episodes early, as well as a bunch of other fun bonuses, you can back the bunker on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook, or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. After describing the day Jeff Astor lost his life, Hannah writes that there is always a moment before you cross the point of no return, before you have stepped over that metaphorical threshold into someone else's life and story and can no longer walk away. Whatever its cues, it's a moment that tells you deep in your bones that this is it. There's no turning back. Campaigners like Dawn Astell have confronted sporting bodies with moments like these, where those in power organisations earning billions of pounds a year are forced to acknowledge that their players have been neglected, and the size of the problem is much bigger than they've ever been willing to admit. You can only hope that through sharing stories like that of Adam Robinson, Mike Webster and Jeff Astell, and through the work of neuroscientists who've been discredited for decades, the most delicate, complex organ in the human body can be better understood. This is Alex Reese signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by me, Alex Reese. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. And the music was by Jade Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>